Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Rob Conley, and we are going to be doing another episode of Game Lab, where we talk about topics that we've been dealing with in gaming. So the, the big topic for today is races and chases, but if we have time, we're also going to get to other topics like uh, alternate histories and going back in time. Uh, so, uh, but to start, uh, Rob, did you were you able to get a, a, a race or a chase in your game? Uh, over the past few weeks or did you find it a challenge uh no it did not come up <laughs> i i i but i, I have done a, them and so i got I, I got plenty to talk about okay i this was the big trouble i found is that i always seem to have races and chases and then when i wanted them or i was looking for them i, I maybe i was just be too aggressively pursuing them and so the players resisted i don't know but they just almost never materialized except for a couple of times and so i got like one or two chases and i did actually uh manage to do something kind of interesting that at least worked for me uh you have that mechanic that i like where you tell people to roll a d10 and don't roll a one and you kind of use it as a it's it, you use it very broadly it seems to cover a lot but one of the primary functions if i understand it is you use it when the players are going to do something and you want to add some tension and maybe have something interesting happen that'll uh, uh, spice things up. And so, yeah, yeah, no, it's just the old, the old adage stuff, stuff happens. So, <laughs> you know, you're a D 20 and one comes up. So something funny happened. And uh, you know, if it's not, there's no consequence to failures, but if there is, you know, it could be more severe, even though it was at all, but certain task. Okay, and I'm sorry. It was you, your system. You use a D20 when you do that, right? Not a D10. Did I did I misspeak? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was using a D10 because that's the system I was using. But you, yours was a D20, and uh, what I ended up doing. So I did get a I did get a chase scene uh, through a city. I can't remember the specifics of it. They were I know they were running after somebody, or they were run, oh they were running away from people. I think. Uh, but we got one of these classic Wuxia rooftop chase scenes, and I realized this would be a perfect opportunity. To, to use a mechanic like the one that you had. So, uh, so you know, normally when I do races and chases, I just do simple roll-offs where it's like make a speed roll and then the other guy makes a speed roll. And then I kind of figure out how far they are away from each other and if they're catching up and if they catch up. And, you know, usually it ends up being a, a series of two to three, sometimes four rolls. And I decided to throw in that uh, roll a d10 and, and, and don't roll a one. And... And I can't remember exactly how I used it, but I was basically trying to determine, do they encounter any massive gaps in the roof system or any kind of obstructions? And I also added a little twist to it, which was I decided that if anybody gets a 10, then something beneficial will happen. So if they, oh, that's good. Yeah, so if they rolled a 1, like there'd be this huge gulf between this house and the next one, and they might have to make a super-duper jump check or something. But if they rolled a 10, then maybe like somebody appears in a window and is like, hey, come inside. You know, you know, like I, I don't I don't know what it would be because I don't think anybody actually rolled a 10. But I just knew if a 10 was rolled that I was going to have something positive happen. And uh, and so I, I found that really useful because that was something I've always struggled with where I, I didn't like keying everything to like the individual speed roll the character is making. I wanted something to kind of mix things up a little bit. And it was a real it's a really simple thing and so i was i was i was glad that i i was in that game with you where i saw you using that because i don't think i would have thought of ever doing something like that and uh and it was really helpful um 
but yeah, so in terms of races and chases, though, I uh, I don't know. I, I always sort of approach them simply. I, I do them as uh, a simple roll off of whatever is the closest attribute or skill to like a speed or if I if I feel that it's important because it's going for a long period of time, an endurance role of some kind. So how do you normally resolve uh, races and chases? Well, um, I back in the day, <clears throat> and for a long time, up up to like a uh, couple years ago, um, I would just plot speed and movement and look at the uh, terrain that they're running through or the city city street layout mm-hmm. and kind of plot it out with uh, not necessarily miniatures, but you know, I would plop the map down and put two di- two I have two tiny dice and put down two tiny dice and we'll roll off and stuff like that. And it it was always unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. It, it never seemed to capture. Well, I played live action role playing uh, since uh, you know it, it, I, I played a lot of live action role playing in the 1990s, and, you know, and I got chased there, and it's never like it didn't feel like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, you know, even with the, the safety rules we had in there, you know, it was still a thrill being chased and you're, and you're looking for things and things come up and I, I never was happy and it seemed kind of tedious. And then I found on a rack something called uh, Chase Cards by Pazio. And it was a deck and it had three sets of cards, one for dungeon, one from urban and one for uh, forest. And the idea is, is you shuffle the deck, like I'm doing now, mm-hmm. and then you lay out five cards, and that forms what they call a, uh, a chase track. And you start off, and basically, if you get through all five cards, or you can you can vary it down, you can make it mm-hmm. three, you can make it longer if you want, but... The idea here, these represent things that happen along the chase, and the first person to complete through the card, uh, you know, either you catch up to the people or the uh, pursued uh, get through all the cards successfully and they thus escape. So the first one I drew was a pothole, and you have a choice. You can try to leap across it or uh, just blindly go forward. And if you leap across it, you have to make an acrobatics roll of DC-10, which is kind of easy. And if you uh, blindly go forward, you have to make a reflex slave save of uh, DC 15. And so, you know, if, if, if one side, so you, if you can see that, you go to the next card, which I drew block path. And you can take one step, two step leap or scramble up the stack. Mm-hmm. Then the next one, unexpected fence. You can either do a boost and a hop or a bust on through. Uh, fruit cart, oh yeah. Uh, strength cat, DC 20, or move that cart. Intimidate, uh, DC 15. Then the final one is a collapse roof. Bounding pass or roof crop scamble. And so that's what I've been using. Uh, it's been working out okay. So, that, uh, so you I, found I, that, I, how, how many years ago did you find that one? Oh gosh, I mean... 
Must be 10 years. I would have to say 10 years now. And that's what you've been using consistently since you got it for, for this sort of situation? When I remember to keep them on hand. Mm. So, I mean, that to me says that's a very, I mean, you know, because every once in a while you'll have something that you find and you just use it all the time. And so that seems like a, 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 a it must be a nice solid system. Um, is that still being made or is that something where you'd have to get it used now because it's not? Yeah, I, I just checked their, their website, and uh, it's still being made. And they had a they had a second deck out, too. Okay, can you get, can you so, repeat the name of it, just so people listening can, can look it up if they're interested? It's called uh, Game Mastery Chase Card Deck by Pazio. Okay. And uh, if, if I remember, I'm going to put a link in the uh, in the description below the podcast, because I've, I've actually never heard of those, but I, I, can, I can very easily visualize what you're talking about. And I think that's a good idea. I might I might pick up a deck today. Um, you know, I've, I've been because because that's kind of similar to sort of the problem that I was trying to address with the role that I was using. Um, and uh, and so I don't know. What, what do you think are some some pitfalls that GMs can fall into with races and chases? Like, do you think there are things that GMs should never do or should avoid uh, or situations where you've just found that in your own games they don't work um sometimes with a random generation system even with the card it's hard to match what's half the action to the terrain so you know if if if, if the players have trouble abstracting what's going on mm-hmm. they really want to see it laid out on a map and and plot it that way it's going to be a disconnect okay with with that that that's the biggest problem i'm having with using the chase card is that i really wish it would match the map figure out a way to matching the map better um but i do basically it's not relation to chases have to relate for journeys across the map Mm -hmm. um For a long time, my MO for that was you make a journey, you roll every day for an encounter, right? Yep. Yeah. I... And then you're just sitting there rolling, 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 and it doesn't take very long, even if you have a good set of tables, but kind of boring for the DM as well as the player. But then I started playing Adventures in Middle-Earth, and they have what they call journey rules. Now, the specifics of it is... Uh, is that you generate, depending on the length of the journey, up to seven events, okay? Typically, it would be two or three. And then you roll roll up those two or three events. And basically, you can think of it, it, it they use a D20, about half the events are good and half are a challenge, mm-hmm. and the other half, or half the events are good and half the events are a complication of some sort. And... Uh, and the events are not all encounters. They, for one, for example, they have an event called Wonders of Middle Earth, where you stumble something that could potentially inspire you, or, depending on the situation, discourage you. <clears throat> so, but it has nothing to do with combat or even a skill challenge. It's just something like a waterfall or or an old ruin of special, you know, exquisite with a, some exquisite architecture. Or anything like, or something like that, and that has worked out a lot better. And I was thinking recently how to apply that to chases, mm-hmm. 
where if you have a chase, you'll have a, a chart, maybe just one or two levels, and you roll up the events of the chase, and they, they're not... You balance the specificness with it with the generic of it, but you generate those events and you look at the map and you can place it on where you want it to happen on the map. Just the same with the journey rules for adventures in Middle Earth. So, you know, rec recently I had a players go on a 200 mile long journey and they generated five five events. Three of them were kind of clustered. Two of them were kind of clustered in one spot, and two of two of the others were clustered in another spot. And uh, because I was able to choose that based on the map, the same way with chases. So uh, I think there would be some work, good, something good can be made from that. Now, I don't know any rules that do quite like that, but uh, probably I'm working on one. That's very intriguing. I, I mean, I know you've been, you've been, uh, you, you've talked about this game quite a bit, and I, I really think we should get a, uh, a session in, like a live stream or so, or something, because I, I really want to experience that part of the system. That, that, that has me intrigued, because I encounter that issue too with with overland encounters, and there are a lot of different ways to kind of handle it. And I've tried some other things myself. I like random encounters, and I like sort of rolling every day for, you know, you know every system's a little different. I use, like, a, I have characters that have survival skill, and that allows them to sort of evade whatever challenges they would encounter. But I, I notice I don't really throw enough, enough things into my encounter tables that would be, like, environmental challenges. I usually have one or two that almost never come up. And, and not enough discovery encounters where it seemed like you were saying, well, what happens if you happen upon, like, a... Uh, a hidden a hidden temple somewhere during the journey um you know that that's something that i think would be really interesting i suppose the only downside is you need you need to have the actual temple sort of at least thought about uh before they get there but um but but yeah i think i think that uh uh over overland encounters can be challenging especially when you're when you're doing the thing where it's like a long journey like you're saying and you're rolling every day and it's like you're rolling things and your brain is constantly like, say you get four encounters in a row and you and they're not necessarily obvious encounters. It's not something like, you know, a tribe of bugbears coming after the party. It's it's like a, a local official or something. You have to, you know, and it's a more role play oriented. You, know, right. you have to be on the ball with stuff like that. And you have to have a reason. Why is that? Why is that official there? You know what? Like, why is this even happening? And and you have to make it interesting because you can't just have every every official they meet have you know come to them for the same issue. Um, no, the the journey rules. Uh, that the nice thing is, if you, if you do roll, like they 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 have a there's an entry in there where you can meet like Gandalf or or not. They don't get that specific. They say you meet a major NPC. Mm -hmm. So first off. That was quite clever. They don't tell you a specific like you. You mentioned a hidden hidden temple. Yeah. Well, a, something based off of this for more generic campaign wouldn't tell you uh, a hidden temple. You just it would say something. You find a ruin, you know, or you, you just find something, and it'll be up to you to figure out based on your situation at that moment what where they would find. Okay. And 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 they balance that level of giving you hints. But not being so specific that it doesn't really fit with what you're doing. Yep. And uh, 
I think that that's a key aspect of the rule, and then, then the ability to place it anywhere along the journey you think it makes sense. Okay, so you don't. Ha it doesn't have to happen in this section of the map that they're currently in. It could happen where where no. you think it would be fitting. Right. You're at the only fixed point of the journey in Adventures in Middle Earth is that you start here and you end here. Mm. Okay, so all the events can happen any time in that where time period. So. You know, and you know, coupled with the actual how they designed the actual event. I mean, I had a session that was nothing about the whole adventure was driven by the by the journey. The players were just trying to get from Roscoe to this place on the Anduin called the Old Four, where they were where they had some friends that they were trying to help. And along the way, they ran into uh, a guy they thwarted a couple sessions ago, just because I rolled up one of the encounters was something called Servants of the Enemy, the enemy being Sauron. Mm -hmm. And servants are not just Nazgul's or, or, you know, necessarily orcs. They could just be evil men. And in this case, I decided, you know, the, the opponent they encountered before were in league with Sauron in disguise as a necromancer. So it made sense. Okay, they, they're out for revenge. Well... Before that, there was another uh, encounter that I rolled called Obstacle, where, you know, it said the players meet an unexpected obstacle and the uh, the scout has to figure a way or everybody gets a level of exhaustion. And uh, so I decided, based on the next encounter being Servant of the Enemy, that what the players actually encountered was they messed with the path diverted the players into an area of difficult terrain and the player had to make a good roll and or they they will fall for the trap and get exhausted and they the players did fall didn't they 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 failed their role and they were all exhausted and then the next then the next day the uh the the evil men ambushed them and it was and they got captured and then they escaped Later on, and you know that's how the whole adventure was driven, just by the journey rule. Okay. And the other thing, the other thing, uh, I mean, I know we're supposed to talk. talk this is actually relevant to Chase. I would really take a look at uh, D and D fifth edition uh, uh, exhaustion rules. They strike a, a good balance between detail and impact on the game. So they had they have six level of exhaustion. The six being death, but the first level. Right off the bat, if you get one level of exhaustion, you're at disadvantage to all die rolls. So, which means you roll twice, take the lower of the two rolls. Mm. And then the second level, your your move is halved, and it gets worse there. And it's not it it's written for fifth edition, but it's not fifth edition specific. So you can look it up in the system reference document and see if you know give that a try because it, you know that could be a very interesting flavor text for, for not just journeys, but chases. You know, one side gets exhausted trying to chase the other, or yep. the pursued gets exhausted while trying to escape from the pursuer. Yeah, no, I, and, I, that's definitely, I think, important. If the chase goes on for a time, you have to start incorporating some kind of exhaustion rules because you can't just run forever normally. So uh, I like having those kinds of options. But yeah, the fifth edition exhaustion rules, like I said, you know, they they balance detail with uh it's not terribly complex, just a six level chart, but 
it had a major outside impact on the game. And you could you really could apply that to any system because that's um you know like not not obviously not every system has a disadvantage, but every system has some kind of existing floating penalty that you could invoke. And every you know most systems have some kind of movement rule, so you can invoke that too. Um, so that seems like something that'd be pretty easy to just slap on to, uh, to, you know, any, any other system. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I did want to move on to the next topic unless, uh, uh, unless you had something else yeah. you wanted to bring up just because we're, uh, the time consideration, but you would, sure. you would mention that you, uh, had some alternate history stuff going on in your campaign. And I've recently had some alternate history stuff going on in my campaign. And so I thought we could talk a little bit about just the issues that uh, time travel and changing the past can bring to a to an RPG. Well, it's definitely an art, and I'm a big fan of uh, alternate history fiction and time travel stories. You know, standing back to H. Beam Piper's. Uh... Oh. Time Patrol? No, that's not H. I'm not familiar with it, so... Piper, Time... Yeah, he's a classic uh, uh, Arthur from... uh, Oh, Paratime. Yeah, that's it. What is it called? Uh, H.P. Piper is a uh, a science fiction auctioneer who unfortunately died in 1964, and... He wrote a series of space novels, but on the other novels he wrote were called Paratime. Mm-hmm. It's about a or time organization, and he was one of the first ones to write about it. Okay. That was any any good, and uh, so you know, starting with him, I've always been interested in time travel and alternate history, and you know, for a while it's been a tradition that you know at least every other campaign involves some kind of time travel. Uh, or alternate history, more rarely alternate histories. And uh, in this recent game that I had, uh, the players uh, took control of a, a villain's of, a, of their enemy's lair, who was a wizard. And uh, the lair had this uh, device called the Nexus, which is you can think of it as a fantasy stargate. It had eight crystals that formed an address, and when the crystals are laid out, a cloud will appear and you uh, step through the cloud and you appear on the other Nexus platform with corresponding to that address. And they knew from the servants that uh, the when the wizards would appear, so they waited for the cloud to appear and put a dimension door in that spot. And they aimed the other end of the dimension door at a uh, web so that when the wizard steps out on the platform, he immediately gets stepped through the portal and then pops out into an area of web. And uh, and the reason they couldn't rip, web the nexus because the portal would rip the web. They already established that the portal would rip the web, the uh, web to shreds. But unfortunately, the dimension door and the portal I ruled to, to be the same thing, the equivalent of putting a bag of holding in a portable hole, and it exploded damaging the Nexus, injuring the PCs, and there's no more wizard. So the players for a while thought, hey, we won, kind of weirdly, but we won. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we took out the wizard. Didn't get his treasure, but we took him out. 
until they stepped out of there and found that they were in an alternate history where the wizard was working for a demon cult and the alternate history had the demons ruling the world now. And so the players uh, had the access to the lair and did the research and figured out that the wizard was uh, teleported back into time and now that they have they have to go back in time and <clears throat> another characteristic of my campaign is the background of when I run a genre I tend to use the same setting regardless of the rules okay so when it's fantasy, I will use my uh, Majestic Waterland. And what the PCs do in previous campaign form part, I will weave into the background of the next campaign. Now, sometimes it doesn't pay off directly because it's not held in the same area of geography. But 10 years ago, after I published the Majestic Waterland supplement, I ran a Swords and Wizardry campaign using it which for a group of friends. And in that... Um, for those of you with my Jessica Wildlands uh, supplement, know that I have a race called the Viridians, which are demons, low-level demons who escaped from the abyss and now exist in the world, and they once had an empire that since fell apart. Well, in that campaign, I also have half-Viridians, and uh, which are people born of a Viridian in another race. So I had a character who played a half-Viridian and who hated his father, and that was a reoccurring theme of the campaign. Well, I decided to make it interesting that the father had him birth because when the father was young, he got imprisoned by a rival, and then he was liberated by a man from the future that turned out to be his son. So when the time came, he had a son, so the son could go back in the past to free himself. And trust me, it, it hurt everybody's head trying to trying to think of it. But I managed to do it. And so for this campaign, the character with the dealt with the wizard, it, it took to place twenty years in in game uh, after the campaign I ran. And uh, so the uh, demon cult hated. This uh, the half Viridian character, but they had some notes on him, and there were clues in there. For example, the character was known known for getting his wealth for selling pristine First Empire artifacts, the th- artifacts mm-hmm. that were thousands of years ago in pristine condition, and were and by every magic known was were not counterfeit; they were a real deal, and they couldn't figure it out. But the players immediately figured out he traveled back into time. Then they pieced together from the note the events of the uh, the last campaign. So now uh, current, and then they actually met the alternate selves of the, the characters that participated in that character. Unfortunately, the half-ridden got killed by the dad in this timeline, where in the previous where, where in my campaign, the uh, character killed his father after he, he came forward back into time. So now the players are about to go to the estate of the half Viridian's father to find the, the, the thing, the portal that tent, the time portal, so they can go back, get the wizard, and 
prevent him from altering time and then uh, hopefully come back to the present. Now the uh, no, uh, I'm going to share my time travel thing. I'll try to be brief, and then we'll, I think we should talk about some of the challenges we both have encountered. Um, yeah, I in my campaign, I, I had I had a similar thing, but in mine, the players had a chariot that took them back in the past, so it was kind of like the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and sure. they kept using it to change the past and to their advantage. And so I, I I had decided that every time you you go through time like this. It sort of disrupts uh, the flow, you know, like time in general, and and so cracks started forming in time. It was sort of like a uh, there was an episode of Torchwood that did something like this. So the the idea was just that you know people would just start falling through the cracks of time into the wrong era, and and I, I sort of used it as a cataclysmic thing that they had to clean up, um, and and so so for me where uh, you know we had the time travel adventures set in the past where they made changes that impacted the present. But we also had this issue where people were coming from the future in like mech suits and attacking them. And, you know, you know, like divisions from like, you know, the the closest equivalent to World War Two in the future of the setting were coming coming through. They would have like platoons of men. Uh, and so uh, so, you know, I I, I almost had sort of a, a you had the problem of one of their uh, them sending somebody back and then having to clean it up. And in my campaign, they went back and I kind of had to clean it up. And they were sort of, they were kind of pulling a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court where, where they were using their knowledge of the future to, to, improve, uh, imp- uh, to, to improve things in the past. Um, but uh, what, what are some of the, like, how do you approach time travel? Like when you, when you, when you see a change in time, uh, did you have any particular method you used for gauging it or did you, did you kind of just sort of try to estimate what the effects of something would be? Uh, well, you know, there, there, there's several ways of handling time travel. If you read, if you read the literature, you know, the different time travels, uh, there, there's several ways of dealing it, um, ranging from David Gerald, the man who folded himself, which is, Free. There's really no restriction, and you can meet yourself. It's a really trippy novel, uh, you know. To to the more restrictive versions of of time travel, I recommend getting GURPS time travel, which will lay out all the possibilities. But in general, my technique. Uh, there was one time back in the early '90s when the players uh, got involved in a relatively recent historical event and an important character almost got killed mm-hmm. but luckily without dm fiat i was able to have him escape basically he had some compatriot who sacrificed him through them without at the character literally so this major npcs could escape and uh so what i've done since then is i send him i I make sure I contrive the situation so that whatever they do can be reasonably looked at already as a part of history. Okay. It would be, you know, I don't throw them in. I, I, I focus more, I'm going to say mundane, but I don't focus on, like, they would never appear in the emperor's court. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. And where, where killing the emperor can have major repercussions. Yeah. They, they, you know, the, the, the half Viridian's father, he was a powerful noble, but there are lots of part of powerful nobles in his histories. And who, who's to say, you know, what would happen, uh, if they, uh, um, got killed or not, or what was spoken to them. Now, for, for when the half Viridian went back, I I was prepared that he, if he would have given in to his desire and killed his father's younger self, he would have erased himself from history. Mm-hmm. But the player was pretty smart, so he knew that was, that, that was a bad thing. And came really close to killing the guy, but uh, decided the better of it and leave him alone. And deal with them in the present. Well, what you're saying, there's a couple of things in there, but one of them, it sounds like, I always say to people, know what franchise you're in with time travel. Like, uh, you know, you know, is it, you know, it's sort of like an easy, quick way to sort of establish what the rules of time travel are. Um, and if you, if you know, if you know, if you know what movie you're in or what book you're in, then you kind of have a clear sense of what, you know, how, what, what, what rules are governing uh, cause and effect and what you can do and can't do. But I'm also intrigued that you 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 you're, you like to to avoid any situation where the players are going to directly impact a major event. It sounds like so so you're gonna you're not going to encourage them to to go meet JFK or something like that in a um and and have them be more like uh, d- dealing with regular things uh, if they if they went back to the 1960s for example um, or at least not dealing directly with anybody important. And the other thing I do is, is time travel magic is limited to like ninth level, the equivalent of ninth level spells. Mm. And uh, it's not easy to uh, set up or get executed. Yeah. You really have to, it literally would have to be the focus of your adventuring career to create a anything that, that will allow you to go back into time. Well, if it gets weaponized, like I've had parties where they were trying to use it to their advantage in the campaign I mentioned, and I realized they had an enemy who was, was you know, realized what they were doing, and it became like a, a nuclear war where they're, they're sort of escalating, uh, you know, like every, everybody's trying to get the best, the best device to change the past. And, uh, and so I think, I think if you're going back and doing that, it, uh, you know, you, you, you sort, it's sort of, it's, it's like the nuclear bomb of a, of a campaign setting. Um, well, I, I would argue if a campaign had that level of access to time magic, mm-hmm. you know, that could send you back into time, there would be an organization, literally a time patrol uh, form. Unless there was a recent discovery, that, you know, the, the authorities would know about this and they would have a time patrol to keep history straight. Well, I think it depends on how prevalent it is. Um and how new it is because i could see because in in my situation it was all relatively unknown up until this point in the campaign and then it became a race for uh access um i think if you've had time for a time patrol organization to evolve uh then you would have that but i get i guess it depends because time travel is so tricky where it's almost really whoever gets time travel first is kind of the one who can set you know they're the ones who get to establish the time travel organization, uh, if if they're smart about it. Um, like that's like the person who gets the time travel device and makes himself emperor at the beginning of time is the one who kind of, uh, uh, you know, 
gets to set the rules, I suppose. But yeah, well, and then and, you know, it also depends on the nature of time travel. If time travel is such, if you take send yourself back in the time and you step on a butterfly, you have a radically different uh, present. You know, that's one argument. That's one style of time travel. Yeah. The other style is that you send you go back time, but time is relatively resistant to change. So while there'll be differences in the events, uh, time will has a natural course that will naturally reset by. And uh, my uh, yeah. my take on it, that relative, my take is that time is relatively resistant to the change. It's eased by the fact that I don't send players into important NPCs court like the Emperor mm-hmm. or or the the first overlord. But uh, there's also agents, you know, active divine agents who act out of time that would set things back onto the natural course. Realize there was an alteration and will partially undo what the PCs do. So they would they can't undo everything, but due to other metaphysical rules that I've been consistent with, but they come back and they'll they'll find a present that's altered but not radically different. No, I I had a I did have divine agents in my in my campaign where there was a god called the Thousandfold God whose one of his duties was had to do with time, and he became involved eventually. But it was one of these things where it kind of had to come to his attention. It wasn't. Uh, the, the cosmology and the setting is more like the the the, the sort of heavenly bureaucracy is kind of like the real world bureaucracy and so sometimes it takes a while for things to come to the attention of whoever's in charge um, but uh, I don't know it's funny I kind of go the opposite way I like to sort of I like to throw them into situations where they're gonna meet the important people and potentially radically change time but I'll also kind of have butterfly effect stuff going on where it doesn't necessarily pan out the way you always expect it uh, and where minor changes can actually have, you know, ripple effects. So my one rule of thumb I have is if a character commits any act of violence in the past, that that could have a ripple effect. And if a character kills somebody, that could have a really big ripple effect. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's like, you know, you go back and you kill somebody a thousand years ago. Who knows? Who, who that person uh, is responsible for in the future. And, and so I developed a chart where the player, you know, like where the players can change, uh, like parts, aspects of their character can change as a result of this ripple effect. Um, and I, I found that pretty handy. Um, but, uh, but, but I do well, think... What, what, oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I, I really have this stuff 100% planned, but I look for opportunities to enrich the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that uh, the players do something in the past and they come back forward. Things are still the same, but now, now, uh, then, then uh, in, in the next few sessions, I'll, I'll drop something. And you said, you mean these people are like that because of what I did in the past? And and I, I would just put my stone face on, my, my poker face on and say, yes, why, yes, that's true. Even though I kind of made it up after the fact. Mm-hmm. But but uh, I've gotten good at that. And the players really eat that up. Like, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, so if I didn't go back and change it, 
sort of like a retroactive change, but it makes sense. The important thing yeah. it makes sense in the context of the of the the background of the campaign. Well, another thing is it I find players like it when they see strong evidence that something they did had an effect and it didn't have to happen. Like that their decision to do something actively produced a result that was maybe large and uh, you know, they could have easily gone the other way and something different would have happened and you weren't yeah. sort of stuck on that one result. Um, I, I you know, I find players are usually appreciative of that. Um, and time travel is one of these situations where it can manifest very, you know, in a very big way. Uh, but with, with killing important people and stuff like that, my thought is you don't want to make room for that unless you're willing to deal with the consequences of it because the consequences can be enormous. And, and so when I allowed for that sort of thing, I sort of had to say to myself, okay, whatever happens, happens, and I have to live with the results. And, you know, so if they go, so we had a, a major character in the past named Sunan. If they had gone back and killed Sunan, that would have, uh, that would have had catastrophic consequences. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I was prepared to deal with them. I had some ideas for how things could pan out. Um, and so I think, I think if you're going to, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna let the players meet JFK, you have to be prepared for the timeline to change, uh, you know, so that JFK doesn't get assassinated or something, and then think through all of the, the the sort of outcomes. And uh, and if and if you don't want that, you want to set the boundaries so that that sort of thing is less likely to come up. Or, yeah, or yeah, like you're saying, time is resistant to change. Like there's active agents that will will sort of go in and and repair alterations that the players might make um so so yeah I, I i think i think it's i think it's a lot of fun i think i think you can definitely shoot yourself in the foot as a gm with time travel i certainly uh i certainly found that in my own campaign there were moments where i was like oh maybe i've taken this too far and i need to i need to you know rethink it but i i i found that if i just kind of leaned into it a little bit it, i i enjoyed myself um and, and, and I think, uh, what, what was the, could you mention that author again? Because I think, uh, people might be interested. It was Piper. H. Beam Piper. And then it was the name yeah. of the book Paratime. Was that it? Yeah. The Paratime series. Mm-hmm. He wrote another one called the, uh, Tarot Human Future History. Uh, his most famous novel was, uh, a little fuzzy. So there's the link to his Wikipedia article. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, These books another... are in the public domain too, so, okay, you, can so find can... Them on, you can find them on Gutenberg and download them to your Kindle. There's a there's another good one that I'd recommend. Um, I think it was by Asimov called The End of Eternity, which I really liked, and that was one that was about a bureau that was basically trying to manage time, and it was it was this bureau that was sort of outside of the timeline. They had I forget how they did it, but they basically were able to withdraw themselves from the timeline at this bureau and then mess with time to maximize uh happiness for all of humanity and it's a very interesting story i won't give away what happens but it's one that that i am always sort of going to for my time travel games uh, i i also posted uh, the link to the wikipedia link to the man who folded himself that's by david gerald who wrote troubles with tribbles from star trek <laughs> Yeah, we just we just we just reviewed a, one of his episodes for Babylon Five not too long ago. Um, uh, but uh, that that is literally time travel unhinge. Okay, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna try to post these links into the into the description below the podcast. If 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 it's not there, remind me. I'll put them in. But uh, okay. uh, I tend to be forgetful. 
but we are getting close to uh, a time crunch here. So I, I did want to get into, uh, we were going to talk about the afterlife in games, but we can maybe save that for next time. Um, sure. Uh, you would had an article on, on, uh, on, on something to do with publishing that I wanted to, you know, that you'd posted on your blog. And I, I just wanted to give you the floor to sort of talk about it and we can sort of, you know, see if anything uh, comes up in conversation here as well. Well, um, in recent years, uh, one bookshelf who runs RPG Now and Drive Through RPG had worked with publisher, notably Wizards, to create what they call community content program, which are, are you know, it's a pretty important and significant innovation where a publisher will say, if you publish your work within this program and only within this program, then we will la allow you access to pretty much all of our IP. Now, for Wizard, they don't allow it to everything in their catalog. And specifically, they currently allow any of the D&D 5e books, anything from Forgotten Realm, anything from the Ravenloft uh, series. So, you know, it's just like thousands of work on there and several platinum sellers on there by these authors who have contributed, you know, which means they got over, I think over a thousand sales. So it's been significant. But the complaint and problem I have is when uh, authors contribute their original work and they have this clause in their license agreement, which can only be found once you fill out the, the form to submit your title, there's a box, fairly large box, but filled with text that will print three or four pages of legalese. If you copy and paste that and read it, it says, you know, in addition to green, that this work can only be released on, on the community content program, which I have no problem with. You also agree that all derivative works will be limited to the community content program. So that means if I released a product with something to take it, it's a trivial example, mind you, mm -hmm. but something called a spear knight. Okay. I wrote some flavor text, tied it to say like uh, Neverwinter in, uh, in Forgotten Realms and gave it some D and D fifth edition stats. Now, normally, if I didn't sign a work for hire contract with a publisher, but you know, I could take that as an author, take that, strip out anything specific to, to another publisher's IP. And uh, if I didn't have the right to the game, give it the stat for another game, like switch it from D and D fifth edition to say uh, RuneQuest or RuneQuest Legend, which is under an open license and publish it. But it's obvious, you look at the two, it's a different version of the Spear of Night, but so you can, it's derived from the Spear of Night, but it's different that it's not exactly, so therefore you can publish it. And, but by specifically agreeing not to do that, you, you lose that right to do that. Now, I have to say for something like the DM's Guild, that's not a big deal as I'm making it out to be because it's centered on the Forgotten Realm setting. Mm -hmm. Okay, they don't want people to post their own original setting on the DM's Guild. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think it's 
not right, but you know they got original fetting. They can't they can't risk their IP on that. Okay. But there are other community content programs like Traveler's Aid Society, especially the ones from Cipher and Cortex, where the focus is on rules where they do want publishers publish their original setting. So normally, from unless again it's for work for hire. Normally, when publishers get another company, and you you dealt with this, you dealt with this with the pundit and uh, Arrow to Vindra. Normally, when publishers sign these agreements, it's only for a specific work, and if the pub and if the author wants to take it around and release it under a different game, you know, most of the time they can do that. They can't use any of the art, any of the layout, but they can take their words, strip out whatever the content of the rules that they're using for that publisher. And publish it. It happens all the time. And but by publishing Cortex Cipher Traveler's Aid Society, your own original setting, you give that right up. Mm. Okay. In fact, they don't want you to use a setting uh, that was already published. In other words, um, and I'm not sure how uh, the, the Traveler's Aid Society would have dealt it because this is where I first became really aware of it. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, Traveler's Aid Society was formed in the wake of Mongoose Traveler 2nd Edition. Uh, there's a the Traveler, uh, Mongoose Traveler 1st Edition had a traditional uh, open content uh, system reference document that third-party publishers have been using. Several of these were ready to hop on the Traveler's Aid Society until they saw that no derivative content uh, clause. Yeah, yeah. But now that I asked, I, I went to OBS uh, and asked him, and I didn't get an answer. And finally, this year, I got an answer to some of my question. And one of the things they didn't want is I asked him, if I publish uh, you know, The Land of Alpha under the open game license, and then made it a version for that for 5th edition, or tra- I would use Traveler's Aid, for Traveler, and uh, actually I used the Majestic Star. If I made Majestic Star for an, for another set of rules under an open game license, and then turn around and repurpose the uh, Majestic Star for the Traveler's Aid Society, would you allow that? And they said no. If, if the content appeared elsewhere, we don't want it on our community content program. So these third-party Traveler... Uh, Publishers, you know, they were they were kind of hosed from the from the get go. Okay, okay. And I, I really have a problem with that. I mean, I I don't have a problem with you know if I write Majestic Waterlands for Mongoose Traveler Second Edition, I have no problem with that work mm-hmm. remaining on that ever only appearing on the Traveler's Aid Society. But I do have a problem not being able to use all that material and and. Uh, um, elsewhere, yeah, I, I think the compensation fifty percent of royalties is fifty percent of the cover price. It, it's not worth it. It's not. It's not a fair deal. Okay. Okay. Now, what 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 is the reaction generally been in uh, to the to the blog post? Pretty much split fifty fifty. I mean, uh, fifty saying you know, I I think twenty five percent are really outraged by this. The other twenty five. Say, yeah, that sucked. We should never post anything up there. The other 25 is like, 
percent is like, well, you know, it's buyer beware. You know, you should the publisher should have read everything. It's his fault if he gets himself in that trap. Okay. See, I think, and then, and oh, then the last, the last twenty five percent is for beer and pretzels, guys. You know, if you if you have any interest in in publishing yourself, you should not touch these programs. But it's for the beer and pretzel guy, and these companies have valuable IP that uh, they're letting them uh, be released. And you know, I, I understand their point, but. You know, there's some point where a deal is unfair, no matter how valuable. If it's Disney, Mickey Mouse, I don't care how valuable Mickey Mouse is, there's there's always going to be a deal that Disney potentially could make that would be viewed as unfair, Yeah. you know? Well, also, I, mean, I think if you're if you're specifically doing something where you're going after a more amateur crowd, and there's plenty, and there's a lot, there's a big spectrum of people that are involved in RPG publishing. Some of them are on the on the very sort of professional end. Some do it more as a hobby and some are sort of the beer and pretzels crowd. I think when you're when you're trying to appeal to that crowd and you're doing something that you want, you know, that broad a spectrum of people to engage in, you you should be as clear as possible because not everybody's going to be bringing a lawyer to the table. And so I think the biggest issue that that I kind of have with this is what seems like a lack of clarity. Um, and it seems like that was what your blog post was trying to do was sort of give people a clear idea of, of what this all really means. Um, right. You know, I, even I would take advantage of these, uh, program if, 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 uh, DM's Guild ever gave permission to use Greyhawk, I've got some stuff that I would post for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like Greyhawk and I wrote some material that doesn't really work anywhere else. And I would happily post it and make a few bucks off of it. So it's not like an it's not all bad. It's yeah. just this one clause and how it's not clear what you're giving up. And what I'm concerned is for the DMs Guild, which I didn't mention earlier, is you know D and D set is the foundation of modern fantasy. Mm-hmm. Okay, until the release of the Lord of the Rings, they literally were the the foundation. Now, now it's kind of like a mix between what people saw in the Lord of the Rings movie and D and D. But since D and D is partially based on Tolkien anyway, it's like it's all one mess. So you get this guy, you get these people who release, uh, really release a body of work on on RPG now, specifically the D and D Guild Adepts that they they're now promoting. How anything they're going to do in fantasy from here on out is not going to be considered derivative. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, that's a deeper question than I see. That, that's where I think the clarity issue becomes important because I see stuff like this and I want to know what all the implications are. And it's way over my head in terms of the legalese. So, uh, and I and I think that's you know again I think that's part of the part of the issue with this stuff is when uh, you know. You have you you have a, a lot of people who are not necessarily going to be bringing lawyers to the table who aren't sure what it all means, um, and and so that's that's where again I think you know the and one more point I, I want to raise is that I don't think OBS is being necessarily evil in all this or wrong. Um, I do feel that it's been a long recognized issue in the creative industry. What, what I guess I would call throwing stardust in a novice author, mm-hmm. uh, eyes. People are very prone to that. They're yes, new. Yes. They don't, they don't have a track record. 
it's the public they don't know what's going on and literally the publisher holds all the cards in that scenario and and some publishers are bad and they take advantage of it. some part of publishers you know they, they, they don't take advantage of it exactly but let's face it it's a novice artist what you know they, they can't treat them like an established guy like say Salvatore mm. or, or Janelle Jacquet or or um, uh, Monty Cook yeah. you know you know they don't get the uh, the, the five-star treatment um, however, it's enough of a problem that Congress has recognized this and put a provision in copyright law that I believe is two decades after release of, of a copyright, the the author can take it back. Yep, yep. If they, if they go through the hoops, they can take it back and get the copyright back. And it most recently happened with Deep Jackson and uh, Melee and Wizardry, Melee and Wizard. Back in the day, Melee and Wizard were published by uh, metagaming as these little pocket games and eventually became the uh, role-playing game Into the Labyrinth. For a variety of reasons, Steve Jackson, when he formed uh, Split with metagaming, was not able to secure the rights to those games like he did with uh, Ogre and some other games. And thus, and the guy who ran metagaming just went off the radar and wouldn't talk to anybody or when he did, the officer's price so exorbitant that nobody would bother. But because of that law, in twenty seventeen, Steve Jackson was able to do the proper filing. And regardless of what the guy at Metagaming thinks, Steve Jackson now owns the copyright back. But so my view is why do we force in you know, I'm not asking that, uh, like, the top uh, one on the list uh, of the DM Depp Guild title is Thanador is lost notes to everything. I'm not asking for OBS to say, oh, it's okay for for that to uh, be released elsewhere. But I think it should be okay. If the author had some good ideas, some characters that he wants to repurpose for another setting, another game, that uh, they should be allowed to do so. No, I mean it was an interesting discussion. I followed some of the the conversations uh, around this, and people really are split in a lot of different ways in this one. Uh, and again, I think I think uh, you know people. I think people can disagree, but I think it is important for the, at least the clarity to be there. So, oh, I agree. Uh, yeah, because I mean that that really does make it. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, this is. I mean, not many people make a lot of money in this industry. You know, uh, and, and, and the people who do are people like OBS and some of the bigger publishers and some of the mid-tier publishers. And, you know, then, and then there are a few people that have found ways to uh, to be successful and, and earn a living. But a, a large portion of the hobby of the of the industry is hobby. It's uh, it's people doing it because they love it. Um, but they also are bringing IP to the table that they care about. And so, uh, you know, I think people should know what they're getting themselves into. Um, so. So, yeah. So. Uh, I think we're, we're we're coming up on the hour mark, so I'm gonna I'm gonna end it there. We'll post a link to to the to the blog post that Rob did. People should check it out. And I'm sure I'm sure you have a do you have a, an extensive comment section at this point on that blog post, or or was the uh, conversation relevant? About eight, eight eight comments, which is okay. a little higher than normal. But okay. I'm sure I'm gonna get more now. I saw threads on it, so I know people have at least expressed their thoughts uh, elsewhere. Um, I think I saw the one at the RPG site, and I don't know. I well, you know, I'll see if I can find others. But, um, 
but yeah, so we'll be back on next time. I, I don't. I guess maybe we'll pick up with the afterlife uh, on that episode. I don't know yet. And, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, okay, yeah, I'd like to talk about the afterlife because it's a it's a complex topic, and I've been experimenting with it, and I'm finding I'm finding that it's something where you can you you can you can really go in all kinds of directions with it, and I'm just curious what other people, you know, on the on the show think about this, um, and. Uh, this Friday, we're going to be doing a uh, discussion on Yes, Madam. Uh, this is an, a really sort of classic action movie from the 80s starring Michelle Yeoh. And I think on Wednesday, me and me and Adam have finished Babylon 5, so we'll be doing a movie called Outland. And then we're going to dive into a show called Return of Condor Heroes. And, and I have some other things coming up, but I'll, I'll announce them uh, in the coming days. And until then, we will talk to you later. Bye.